All right, well, we have Pastor Adam Smith in the house for us today. We are so glad to have him here. His beautiful bride is with him, and they are celebrating 20 years of marriage while they are with us this weekend. So will you do an amazing well welcome and stand with me and honor Pastor Adam as he comes to bring the word today. Thank you so much. Man, it is good to be here and uh, get to be back here. Um, it's been a while since I've been here. And uh, it's extra special for me this time because it's the first time in probably coming here for like eight or nine or 10 years, however long it's been, the first time my wife has ever got to come with me. And uh, she's here in the front row. And part of it is, it is this, uh, this season is uh, this last Tuesday we celebrated our 20th year wedding anniversary, which is incredible. So we have been through a lot of ups and downs and a lot of years and a lot of different uh, pants sizes. Uh, some of you are pretending like you don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, yeah, you logged some miles some carbs, you know what I mean? Like there's different seasons. She's had babies, so she has excuses. I got no excuses. I just like cheese. Um, and it's, man, it's come to haunt me. So, but I'm, I'm really glad to be here. And I, I love your pastors. I think you have one of the best pastors in the United States. It's just such a phenomenal leader, such a big heart. And a part of the reason my wife, my wife wanted to come, she's like, let's go and steal all of the parish's great ideas. And I was like, we're not gonna have enough notebook space for that, um, but we can try, we can do all we can. Um, but today, I hope that you dive in, that you lean in, that you grab hold of something that you can take with you here and live life more like Jesus and reflect Jesus more to the people around you because you're here, because you're paying attention. Because ultimately, the purpose of preaching is not just to be inspired, but to actually grab hold of something that you can apply in your life and uh, that as you leave here, you become better. You become the light of your community. And hopefully there's something in the mix today that you can grab hold of. And if you are taking notes today, and I hope that you are, the title of my message is, Who Does That? Who Does That? You ever looked at something someone else did and you just thought, Who Does That? Seriously, I don't even have a category for this person, for who would do something like that? My wife, Gretchen and I, we have three kids and uh, our oldest is 14 now. And so she forbids that we show pictures of her in public anymore uh, without getting her written permission. And it has to be notarized uh, by at least two people. It's, there's a whole elaborate weird system. Uh, and yet she can post whatever she wants to of me on her Instagram story apparently, and that's fine. Uh, it seems like a little bit of a double standard. But we have two sons and they could not be any more different. I brought a picture just to show you. These are our two sons. This is Cohen, he is the, uh, the older of our two sons. This is Zeke, he's the youngest. And um, I mean, just by this photo, you can tell they're a little bit different, right? <laughs> just a tiny little bit. Cohen's trying to live the thug life <laughs> as, as successfully as like an awkward white kid can. And this is Zeke right after he just received his documentation that he was, uh, you know, um, the youngest insurance salesman in the tri-state area. <laughs> He's doing, very, he's doing very well, you guys. He's doing so good. They're just different. 
Like, Cohen would rather, like, like, fade into the background. Zeke is kind of a showman. He likes to be out in front of everyone doing stuff. And there was this moment uh, a little while ago where I'm, I'm sitting in our, our living room and I'm reading a book and the boys are outside and they're, like, riding bikes and hanging out and stuff. And, um, and Cohen comes inside and he's just like, Dad, you have got to go out there and talk to Zeke. He is being so embarrassing. He's ruining our reputation in this city. And I was like, what? A little extreme. And I'm like, what happened? And he was like, well, you know how Zeke likes to wear clothes that are a little too tight for him? And you know, in all fairness, you, as you can tell, Zeke has a little bit of a husky figure, okay? Gets it from his father, honestly. And sometimes he's just like, he'll grab something and he's just like, this seems great. And I'm like, that's maybe a little too tight. You know what I mean? For the activity that you have planned for the day. And he was out there riding bikes and uh, he, was, he was riding and he tried to do a jump and his tight shorts got caught on the bike seat and just ripped the hole like in his pants. And then I'm just like, oh man, he's probably so embarrassed and whatever. And uh, like, I, I, I like hold back the curtain to see if I can see him. And I see him and I, I, I don't know if he's embarrassed or not, but this is all I see. He's got his back to me. There's all these neighborhood kids and he's just like motioning like this. I'm like, I think he's drawing attention to it. I'm like, is this kid showing his junk to the whole, what is happening right now? Now I gotta go out there and sort it out. And I go out and I'm just like, Zeke, what happened? And he turns around to me and he's like, dad, look at this. It's hilarious. And you know, parents are pulling their kids away being like, maybe we don't need to get to know this family. And I, I look back and, and Cohen is just in the doorway looking like, oh, uh. And I'm like, Zeke, come here. And he's like, what? And I'm like, hey, man, you need to go change your, we can see through to the things that, you know, you don't want to show people. And, um, and so he comes in and he like, he agrees to get changed and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting with, with Cohen and I'm like, are you going to go back out there? And he's like, no, I may never go outside again. I can't be around him. And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, what he did, he's like, you gotta talk to him, dad. You gotta talk to him. You gotta tell him, like, he can't be doing stuff like that. And I'm like, I, you know, it was kind of weird and inappropriate, but it's also, it's very him, you know, and he's just, he's different than you. And Cohen's response was just, yeah, he's different than everybody. And I was like, he is. That's why he has the top sales of insurance in the tri-state area. This is different. This is different people. And I wonder if you have found yourself in the middle of a situation where you realize that you may have been in the same situation as another person, but you were not having the same experience as the other person. Like both boys, both out, both experiencing the same thing, one completely entertained by it, one excruciatingly embarrassed by it. Same situation, same family, right? Boys growing up in the same home and yet, this is reality. And I wonder if you have ever been so disoriented by a situation that you find yourself doing exactly the same thing that my son is doing. He like comes inside and he's like trying to get me to side with him. Like, dad, you gotta, you gotta tell him what to do. You gotta make him be different. You gotta make him right, right? He is, he's clearly wrong and I'm clearly right. And I think we have these situations in our life where someone is doing something or being in a way that is so different from anything we have a category for that we just assume that they have to be wrong. And we're just like, am I crazy? 
that's weird, right? And we're trying to get people to side with us against them. And it's not necessarily that we wanna be against them, it's that we want to be in the right. We wanna feel normal. And I think this like introduces us to a problem in that if we become convinced that there is sort of one singular way to see, interpret, and approach everything, when we clash, our tendency is going to be to immediately search for evidence that I'm right and you're wrong. And the issue is in, in, in the assumption that maybe there's only one right way to be, and of course, that right way is me. And a lot of times we hold on to this thing. I wonder if you've ever had this thing where you just thought like, you know, everything in life would be so much easier if everyone would just be like me. <laughs> if they would just see things like me. If they would just do things like me. If they would just approach things like me because I know what I'm doing and they seem crazy. And yet most of the people around us couldn't be more different than us. And this is true about the culture in large. This is true about your own family. You ever looked at the people in your own family and just thought there was a mix up of the hospital? Like there is no way, I cannot be associated with these people. Like we're not, it doesn't make any sense. We are nothing alike, but you look identical and people are like, we're not buying it. But you feel so different because you realize so many of the experiences that you're having in life, you are not really having the same experience. And I think a lot of these differences that we encounter in life, they stir up disagreement and disappointment. And at times, they can destroy the relationship itself. And I think a lot of us find our relationships fractured with our family, with our friends, with our community over not necessarily biblically right or wrong things, but over personality issues and preferences that we simply cannot make room for people that look at and see things and experience things and express themselves in different ways than we do. And so how do we keep this from happening? And uh, I think a great way to explore this is to look at a story from the life of Jesus and. Um, we're gonna do that together today. It's in, found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 38 is where we're gonna start. And it's a famous story of Jesus. You've probably heard it before. But I wanna make some observations about it um, that maybe you have, maybe you haven't heard before. But this story has always endlessly fascinated me. And it's also about siblings that couldn't be any more different than one another um, in the same way that my boys are, except this is about two sisters. So it's even more interesting and more dramatic. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, says this. As Jesus and the disciples came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing, and she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't this seem unfair to you that my sister just sits there while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Right at the get-go. Like all the information you need to know about these people in these two sentences, right out the gate. Same family, same DNA, couldn't be more different, right? They both find out that Jesus is coming right at the same moment. 
they're having the same, like they're in the side of the same situation and both instantly and automatically makes assumptions about what that means and what should happen because they're different. Their perception of the situation is different. One sister thinks like, oh my gosh, the house isn't even clean and now I'm gonna have to make a big meal and where's everybody gonna sleep? And I mean, I like Jesus, but I was kind of wanting to lay low tonight because it's been a very stressful week. And now I'm not gonna be able to do that. And so maybe just like give a call, maybe just send a messenger next time you wanna come, Jesus, I love you, but it's very inconvenient because now it's like a lot of work for me and now I'm gonna have to stay up late. And the other sister sees Jesus coming and all the things that run through her mind is like, this is so exciting. Oh my gosh, I can't believe, I love surprises. This is amazing. Wow, I, Jesus is, he's, he's so fun and he's just such a great storyteller and he's so entertaining and interesting and inspiring. And it's probably, you know what it's gonna be? It's gonna be one of those nights where we're all hanging out and we're like talking and then we start laughing and we laugh so hard we pee a little. And it's just like, that is, Jesus, he's just so interesting and he's gonna leave and it's gonna be the best experience we've ever had, right? And where are people gonna sleep? Who cares? We may not even sleep. Sleeping isn't even the point. There's a term for what is happening inside these two people's heads. They're forming expectations, right? And it happens very naturally. So what does that mean? What is an expectation? An expectation is the emotionally charged anticipation for something to happen a certain way. And our expectations are so obvious to us, oftentimes we don't feel the need to voice them because we're like, <laughs> of course, this is the way things are. And this is the right thing to do. It's obvious, why would I need to tell anyone? Because if they're not an idiot, <laughs> they would see what I see, AKA the proper way to see the world. Why am I doing what I'm doing right now? I'm doing it because I'm responding to the world as it is. And I'm doing what I should do. I'm not, I know what you're gonna say, but I'm not seeing the world through a filter. I'm seeing the world through facts. And then, and then this happens, right? Um, they don't see what you see, right? <laughs> like, or if they did, they just didn't really care about it to the extent that you cared about the thing that they really cared about. And uh, you know, oftentimes our experiences fall short of our expectations. And man, we feel hurt, we feel insulted, we feel disrespected in those moments, we feel put upon. Oftentimes we have this flash of anger that overwhelms us when somebody isn't like cooperating with the image of the situation inside our head. And the, the thing that we jump to is not like, you know what, I guess they're probably just different, right? It's usually like, how dare they do this to me? Doesn't it always feel like enormously personal? Like anytime something happened, like the first thing on the other person's mind, like the assumption we make isn't like that they saw the situation and just maybe had a different experience than we did, even though we're in the same situation. We assume that they were just like, this is my opportunity to torture her. <laughs> oh, I know what she's expecting and what she's wanting. I know what the right thing is. You're not getting it from me. <laughs> oh, and you know the reason why I'm here to torture you. Like we make that assumption in our head, which oftentimes 
is really far from the truth. When I read this story, I get this like image in my head. I picture the situation of what's happening. Um, I, I brought a picture of this. This is an actual photograph, but you have the two sisters. This is everything, right? Jesus is just like, he, like, Jesus is like, he's very receptive and he's like, he gets what's going on. But like, his look is just that, like, he's not, he's acting like he's not aware of the drama, but he is. And if you look at these ladies' faces, you can see how much drama they're experiencing. He's just talking, he's like, hey, whatever. And she's just like, oh my God, yes. And she's so into it. And then she's over there and she's being so annoyed. She's so frustrated. You know, she's looking and she's judging. She's like, this is unfair. I don't like this. I'm angry about this. I don't like that I have to do this. I don't like that you expect me to do this so that you can just do that and you were gonna expect me just to do all the work. It actually says in the scripture that she is so angry, she's distracted by her anger. Meaning that she can't completely focus on what she's doing because she's so obsessed with what her sister is or is not doing, which is really frustrating. And you can see this, like she's not actually in preparing the meal. She's sitting here just being like, and this is even more annoying because she actually likes cooking. She actually likes hosting. She likes helping. She likes caring for people. This is actually the way God made her and it gives her a great deal of joy to exercise this gift that she's been given, but she's not enjoying it right now because her stupid sister <laughs> is not getting with the program. And this stirs up all sorts of frustration in her. And I know it's sort of hard to see her face. Can, do, can we just zoom in on this? I don't know if we have this. She is... Some of you are like, they got it right. <laughs> they got it right. And here's what I wonder. I wonder if this is an expression that is imprinted on your heart a lot of the time in various situations and circumstances. I wonder if you ever do this. If you ever find yourself thinking like, they should have done this, they should have done that. And you replay and rehearse the whole situation over and over in your head. Like you're in the other room. I imagine that after this, and she was like, okay, I, got, I, I still have stuff to do. She went in the other room and she's like angrily chopping stuff. Hopefully loud enough to where everyone can hear. Disrupting the story, banging pots around. She's not even using pots. She's just slamming them around, hoping to get people's attention. And like the more she's just like, he should have, you know, you ever talk like you're arguing with the person, they're not even there. It's just you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, I'm just going to do Oh, really? <laughs> and then your kid comes in and is like, what, what are you doing, mom? And you're like, oh, oh, nothing. <laughs> just live my life. And the more we, we think about it, the more we obsess over how right we are, how wrong they are, like the more angry we become, the more bitter we become because they're wrong. And this is what we tell ourselves. Like until they acknowledge it and apologize for it and change it, I can't be happy. And 
because we've set the parameters of our own happiness, we trap ourselves in our own prison that requires us to be able to control someone else in order to experience joy in life. And we blame them, but we're the one who constructed the bars of the prison, locked it, threw the key away. Actually, you gave it to them. Let me out whenever you feel like it. And they're like, what's this? You know, they just <laughs> aren't even paying attention. And here's the thing, I, like, I think it would have been really easy for Martha to believe that Mary's wrong because right before this, Jesus, if you just flip backwards in your Bible, like Jesus taught a parable called the Good Samaritan. And what is this parable about? Like we've all probably heard this, right? Is Jesus talking about how important it is to lay your life down and serve and sacrifice on behalf of other people. And I think if I were Martha, I would have been like, that's how I know I'm right. Did you not just hear what Jesus just taught? I'm doing the right thing. You're doing the wrong thing. I have proof. Jesus' own words. She just is getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And she's so annoyed about it, not just because it's happening, but because <laughs> my sister's clearly doing the wrong thing. And you know what's most frustrating? Jesus isn't saying anything about it. If you notice in the, in the picture, her angry look is not at her sister. It's actually at Jesus. She's looking frustrated at Jesus because you ought to say something to her. It's boiling over inside of her. And so, you know, obviously, instead of confronting her sister, she yells at Jesus for not confronting her sister. Let's read how this amazing situation goes over. Luke chapter 10, verse 41 says this. Um, but the Lord said to her, my dear Martha. Does it already sound condescending? Oh, dear, dear Martha. Oh, you do so many things, but you stress me out. He says, you are worried and upset over all these details. Could that be true of your life? You are worried and upset about what? All the details. What in particular? All of it. <laughs> There's only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary's discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. And Jesus is saying to Martha, essentially, Mary is present in this moment, engaging with me wholeheartedly through the lens of her personality. And that's what I want for you too. But your desire to dictate what she's doing is keeping you from connecting with me through what you're doing. And I wonder if this has ever happened in your life, that your desire to dictate what someone else is doing has actually robbed you of the ability to connect to God through what you're doing because you're not even present in the thing that you're doing that is good for God because you're like, what about, what about, what about them? How come they're not? Jesus, when are you gonna say something? When are you gonna do something? They're doing it wrong. Wow. And the issue isn't, I think, what either of these two are doing. I think it is the way in which they're doing it. And, and, and in fact, I think this is really the heart of it. it it's, it's not that, that, that sitting is better than serving, but that connecting is better than controlling. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying, that oftentimes we don't see below the surface to actually be able to excavate. 
I think this story could actually be told in the opposite way. I think if Mary had angrily told Jesus to tell Martha, Jesus, you gotta tell her to stop cooking and get in here and sit down and be a part of what's happening, that Jesus probably would have responded similarly because this story is not that, like it's not about the fact that she chose chores, it's that she chose pride and anxiety and codependency over openness, vulnerability, and trust. You see, Martha wanted Jesus to confront her sister, but Jesus saw this as an opportunity for Martha to confront herself. He's like, all this stuff that's going on inside of you, me telling your sister what to do is not gonna fix all that angst in you. You're gonna have to look in the mirror. You see, disappointment which happens when our expectations are shattered in front of us, it exists to teach us paradigm-shifting life lessons. I think often our mistake is assuming that those lessons are always about someone else. Oh, I'm disappointed that this is not the way it's supposed to go. And the reason that I'm aware of this is because Mary is wrong. (laughs) And Jesus is like, is she? And so what is it that Jesus wants Martha to see? I think maybe the depth of her frustration and where it's really coming from. Because disappointment over dashed expectations is often about more than what sets it off. Like certain situations actually send unprocessed pieces of our past to the surface. And it it frustrates us, but it's actually a gift from God to say like, are we gonna deal with this now? We're gonna let it settle back in. Oh, now, now are we gonna address it? Oh no, we just let it, because it's all them, right? I'm guessing this is probably not the first time that Mary sat and Martha served, which is why she's so angry, because this is not the first time she's been annoyed. It seems like her bitterness has been stockpiling for some time. Isn't that when you get the most angry, like when someone does something and it triggers you? Not because you're like, I can't believe they did that one time. You're like, oh, this again. <laughs> and it's like a reminder of all the times. And then you didn't say anything or you said like a little thing or whatever. And, it, and it's just building and building and building and you're replaying it and replaying it and replaying it. And it becomes this foothold in your life that actually prevents you from loving them and actually prevents you from experiencing Jesus. I wonder if you've ever been surprised at your own outsized reaction to a dashed expectation. And the more you reflect on it, the more you realize, I don't think this is just about this. In fact, I don't think this is just about them. Maybe some of your anger has nothing to do with this situation or this person. Maybe it's like, maybe some of it has to do with how hard you worked and the fact that this situation is reminding you that you got overlooked for that promotion more than once. So the thing that's happening at home really has nothing to do with this. It has to do with the fact that you feel like you always get the short end of the stick no matter how hard you work and how hard you try, nobody sees it. Maybe it has to do with you being partially overlooked in high school circles. And this thing that's happening when you're 40 really has nothing to do with these people. It has to do with 18 year olds from back in the day who shut you out and now it feels familiar. Maybe that has shaped the way you see and interpret and approach this in bigger ways than you thought. 
And so how do we keep from assuming that the way that we see something is the way that everyone ought to see that, that same thing? How do we keep from falsely believing that maybe like our way is the same way that everybody should do everything? How do we stay focused on who God has made us to be as opposed to trying to micromanage who everybody else should be? There's this really helpful thought that gets shared in the book of Ephesians written by one of the New Testament authors. I think it's one of the most challenging passages in all of scripture. And it says this, always, and then he's gonna tell us stuff that we cannot do always, which is so annoying, right? <laughs> always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults. Because of your love, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Humble, gentle, patient, like three traits Martha is not exuding at this moment. <laughs> I'm right, she's wrong, tell her Jesus. Like none of those things that we're supposed to always be, right? This is the opposite of humility. Sorry to interrupt story time, Jesus, but uh, maybe you could preach a little better and get specific and tell her what she's doing wrong so she can step up her game and be as good a Christian as me. The opposite of gentleness and patience. And here's what I wonder about you. How many of your conversations with God consist of you telling him to tell someone else what to do? because this is ultimately the problem that Jesus is putting a finger on in Martha's life. It's as if in this verse, a phrase that Paul, by the way, repeats more than once in the New Testament, is he's saying like, look, it, it, it maybe they are not wrong, maybe they are. Either way, you can't control them. You can only control yourself. And so aim your responses at humility and gentleness and patience. Another verse gives this advice. This is also in the, in the New Testament. Philippians chapter two, verse three. It's another fun one. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now, I don't think that Martha saw her reaction as selfish, but it was. Like she wanted to impress Jesus, right? She wanted to impress everybody with her responsibility. And in her mind, she was doing the right thing and everybody else was doing the wrong thing and that's not fair. She was, she was interested in getting her to-do list done and she hyper-focuses on it and it becomes all she sees, all she cares about, the one priority that she thinks everybody ought to focus on right now. And Jesus' response in this story seems to be signaling like, listen, there are different ways to demonstrate love. And if you're both right, the only wrong thing here is you expecting her to be just like you. I love this quote from writer Donald Miller. He wrote this in his book, Scary Close. He says, when you stop expecting people to be perfect, you can like them for who they are. There's something so powerful about that. 
And isn't that what, what is ultimately at stake here? Missing out on the amazingness of who someone actually is because we're too busy trying to craft them into who we're convinced they should be instead. Because the reality of it is they don't have the same perspectives and priorities and pet peeves and personality or capacity as you. And that means they're not gonna have the same impulses or expectations as you because they are not you. And according to Jesus, that's not bad. I think this is where a lot of our anxiety comes from in life, from trying to get people not to be more like Jesus, but to be more like us. And this is what I find is a very helpful mantra. Releasing others to be different from me is a key to reducing my anger and anxiety. Think of how much lighter you would feel if you released the need to make everyone just like you. If you focused in on who God has called you to be and did the thing that God had asked you to do and trusted that you don't need to tell Jesus to tell other people what to do, that Jesus is perfectly capable of telling people what they need to do as he sees fit. That as it turns out, this may blow your mind, the Holy Spirit is way better at his job than you are. Some of you are just gonna pull out that excerpt and just send it to someone. It's just gonna be on replay. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is better than you are. And you're gonna voice over their name. And I, that's, not, I, that's not what I'm doing, you guys. I put those words in my mouth. I think this is actually a, a big part of what Jesus is trying to get Martha to see in this story that like, you know, you want me to make her like you, let her be who I am making her be. And so how do we regularly keep these truths in front of us? And I wanna give you just two quick principles about eating at restaurants <laughs> that I think can help you keep your expectations of other people in check. And maybe this will work for you too, okay? And the first one is this, don't expect to be served something you did not order. Okay, it would not make sense to show up at a restaurant, sit down, order nothing, get angry, and then be like, where are my nachos? <laughs> and a waitress is gonna come over and be like, you never ordered, sir. Right, but I'm hungry. And I wanted nachos, and if you really knew me and cared about me and loved me, you would intuit that I wanted nachos, and you would have brought me the nachos that I wanted. That sounds crazy. <laughs> we do this in relationships all the time. No one can read your mind. If you do not clearly communicate with the people around you what you need from them, you are not very likely to get it from them. And this is what we do all the time, right? We show up in the restaurant of our relationships and we're like, where are my nachos? People are like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. <laughs> you never ordered anything. The second principle is this. Don't expect to be served something not on the menu. There's this uh, therapist, Christine Hassler, who says, uh, don't order nachos at a Chinese restaurant. That is brilliant advice, you guys. <laughs> so you're like, wait, yeah. Because that's not what they do there. And that seems absurd, right? 
Oh, I'm feeling like nachos. You guys want to go to Panda Express? <laughs> what? I don't think they do that there. Well, if they don't, they're wrong. It's not what they do. And it's not because they hate you. Isn't that what we assume? If you don't serve me what I want that's not on the menu, you hate me. No, we just don't have that stuff, right? The reason oftentimes that they don't do this at a restaurant, right? They don't have the ingredients. They don't have the recipe or they don't have the tools. What if the people in your life want to give you what you want? They are not capable. They don't have the ingredients. They don't have the recipe. They don't have the tools. You're like, I ordered it. They're like, we don't do that here. What if they don't have the ingredients or recipes or tools to give you the support or advice or encouragement you're after? What if you're asking something from them that is not on their menu? I'll tell you, one of the reasons why my wife and I uh, have been married and we still like each other after 20 years of being married together is because like there are all sorts of things that I need out of life that I cannot expect from her exclusively. It's not fair because she's just like, okay, that thing you never ordered and these things are not on the menu, sir. Like there are certain things where I'm just like, I like, to, I like to discuss and debate certain theological issues. She's like, maybe you should call Jason. <laughs> no, because you're stressing me out right now. I don't wanna get into all that. I wanna go watch this movie. She's like, not my flavor. Maybe call one of your other friends. I'm like, I need a workout partner. Let's go take this bench press seriously. And she's like, that's not me. And it's not because she doesn't love me. What a warped assumption. It ruins our relationships. A few years ago, my grandpa, who I was really close to, passed away. And devastating. I flew out um, to be with my family. One of his dying wishes was that I do his funeral. My grandpa always did things like way bigger than life. So we had two funerals in two different cities. I was like, okay, grandpa, come on. <laughs> And I went out, we did this thing where we, you know, sat with our family and everybody's swapping stories of all the things that we miss about him, that we love about him. And it's that weird emotional roller coaster where you're laughing and you're crying and it's like really, and you're sharing all these stories and you're like, oh, I forgot about that. Oh yeah. And you know what I noticed that all of these stories that every single person was sharing had in common, they were all things that made him so lovably unique, not things that made him exactly like us. What a sad thing to figure out about the people you love after they're gone. I wonder how many people in our lives pass away thinking that they are unloved because they're not enough like us. And then all the stories we tell when they're gone are all about how we loved that they were not like us. How we needed them to not be like us. How we loved that they loved differently than we know how to love. That that was part of the story. And I just wonder like if you stopped expecting the people around you to be just like you. I wonder if you could start enjoying them for who they actually are. And I think a lot of this is 
comes from, this, this warped connection we have with other people, comes from our warped understanding of who Jesus is. And this is the thing that I hope you walk away with today. I, like, what do you think of when you think about how Jesus sees you when he looks at you? Is it like, oh man, I wish you were like this and you should do it. Here's what I really believe about our God, that when he looks at you, the very first thing that happens is just like, I like you. I like you. And some of you, like, you have stopped the story at like, Jesus loves me. Jesus more than loves you. He likes you. He's like, oh man, and don't stop, don't be like your sister. Don't be just like your brother. Yeah, they got some stuff you could learn from, but don't copy and paste. I made you to be you. That thing that makes you like, not like all these other people, that's your best thing. I wonder if when you sit in the quiet place by yourself, just with God, I wonder if you had that sense roll over you that God is not just like, uh, uh, you gotta work on that, you gotta do that. If the first thing that God thought was like, first off, <laughs> I like you. Uh, you're so, you make me laugh. You're so interesting. You are so you in ways that are amazing and beautiful and needed in a way that like, man, the world would be incomplete if we didn't have you being you right here like that. Yeah, there's some stuff that we need to, 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 to work on. There's some stuff that we need to like change. There's some areas we need to experience discipleship, but like all that is secondary to the fact that I, I love you and, and I like you and I want you to be you. And in fact, in, if we disciple you in these ways, you will become not more like somebody else, you'll become more you, the real you, the best you. And I just wonder how much more you would love your life and you would experience the love of God if you were just like, God, who have you called me to be? What have you asked me to do? I'm going to do this thing well. And when this voice comes up and is like, well, but what about, and she should, and he oughta, <laughs> Jesus, you're gonna have to do what you do with them. That's none of my business. She's kind of a sitter and I'm kind of a server. And you know what? I'm gonna serve with my whole heart, happy, caring, and connecting, and leaving the controlling aside. Because here's the reality, not even God is trying to control you. Because control doesn't change people, love does. This is what God gives to us and asks us to give to the people around us. And that's what I wanna pray into your life today. I wanna pray that God would begin to change the way that you see the people in your circle. And instead of trying to mold them and make them in your image, you're just like, God, they are your project. God, teach me who I need to be and let me love you and love them by being the best version of me, period. Would you bow your heads across this room with me? God, we are so incredibly grateful for your love, your grace, your mercy. God, you give us more than we need. 
God, we are grateful for the gifts that you've placed in our life. And we're grateful for the relationships in our life, for these people that are so lovably infuriating because they are not like us and they're not like us on purpose, by design, so that we can learn from them, we can experience from them a different aspect of who you are. God, I pray that you would increase not just the love of the people around us, but that you would increase our ability to like the people around us who are not like us. And in those moments, that exchange between us would be transformative in their lives and in ours. Do it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Amazing job, Pastor Adam. Thank you so much. Are you encouraged? Are you challenged? I love when we get messages like this because we get to immediately go out into the lobby and put it into practice, right? This is real life. This is how we grow. Iron sharpens iron. Amazing moment. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and ask you guys to just stand as we get ready to dismiss. I wanna pray over those in the room that don't yet know Jesus, who are saying, I wanna know who Pastor Adam was talking about. And I just wanna invite you to say this prayer with us all together so we don't leave anybody out. Say, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for forgiving my sins. And I ask that you would come into my heart and my life. Thank you, Lord, for all the work that you do. And start out this journey fresh and new with you today. In Jesus' name we pray.